This is an example of speech. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think, a free from oversight and free of charge, thoughtfully improvised, expletive deleted, details expanded, whistle blow hard evergreen topical heatwave of an ongoing conversation turned podcast in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. To listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tellmewhattothink.com. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at bloated nemesis. And your host is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at green underscore weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles speaks with candidate for congressional office from New York 16th, Andam Gebra Georgi. Prepare to get righteous and reactionary. This is Tell Me What to Think. Hello, it's Andam Gebra Georgi from Mount Vernon, New York. I'm running for Congress in New York's 16th Congressional District. Andam, uh, thank you for your time and thank you for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, looking at your race, of all the races I've interviewed so far, it's amazing that this guy has been in office since we were both small children. <laughs> uh, yeah, 1989. It's amazing. New kids on the block. <laughs> oh, man, that brings back some horror sh- memories. Um, tell me what you think about the race in the district. Yeah, well, you know, I this race is pretty interesting. Um, Elliot Engel has, as I said, been in office for the last 31 years, and his district has actually changed a bit uh, over the course of his, his tenure. Um, you know, it's with new, the census and reapportionment, you know, it's moved a bit. But um, the district as it's constructed now is 65% people of color. Um, it is a majority minority district. Uh, and it's a very progressive district. So one of the reasons why I ended up deciding to run was that I didn't, as someone who grew up in this district, who taught in this district, I very much strongly felt that Elliot Engel and his politics didn't represent the needs, the values, and the priorities of the people here. Um, And so, you know, the races has been very interesting. You know, we have multiple uh, progressive challengers who are challenging Elliot Engel. Um, but we feel very confident in our vision and our platform, particularly challenging Elliot Engel and his militarism, which has historically, you know, been one of the things that made him different from a lot of Democrats. Right. I saw he endorsed Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Are there any other policies that you're thinking of in that uh, opposition? Or that militarism? Oh my God! Well, yeah. When it comes to, when it comes to militarism, I'm like, uh, how long is this show? I can go on for hours. Um, well, we have at least an hour, but we've talked about it at length before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so he, he, we can go back, but I mean, just starting thinking about this in a post nine eleven from post nine eleven, um, two thousand three, he voted for the uh, war in Iraq. Two thousand eleven, he voted against withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. 2015, when we're thinking about Obama's Iran nuclear deal, um, he was a Democrat who opposed that. 
2016, he voted against the Conyers Amendment, which would have prohibited munitions transfers to Saudi Arabia in their inhumane, horrific bombing in Yemen. Um, and then, you know, when you look at military aid to countries that commit human rights abuses, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, um, the Philippines, but then particularly on Israel, as you just said, you know, he has been one of the most uncritical, reflexive supporters of even the most right-wing policies, um, things that put him aligned with Trump and Netanyahu, as you articulated, moving the, supporting the moving, supporting the embassy move to Jerusalem, um, supporting uh, ex extending sovereignty of the Golan Heights within Israel proper, um, withdrawing funds from UNRWA uh, to fund Palestinian education, chastising Obama in 2016 um, for abstaining from the UN vote, which was criticizing settlements. So when it comes to just entrenching the occupation and, and even being opposed to settlements, this Elliot Engel has been you know, as far to the right as possible, uh, even for Democrats. Right, as far to the right of the Republican Party, there's seemingly no basis of uh, compassion in his foreign policy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, is there anything in particular that inspired you? Yeah, you know, so I was a... I, I, I grew up in the district. I went to public school, and then I went to private school. I ended up graduating from Yale, political science and economics major. And just in my academic uh, education background, I had seen many, many different types of uh, institutions. I had seen the difference between an integrated public school and an affluent private school. But really, the thing that, for me, was just one of the most eye-opening uh, events and, and, and features of my professional career was when I became a teacher. I taught in an underfunded apartheid school in the Northeast Bronx. And, you know, we had to pay for things like paper. We didn't even, as a teacher, just imagine having to pay out of your own pocket to give your kids a worksheet. Um, we had 500 students and only one social worker. And this was in an area where the students had a lot of high needs, like all teenagers do, but particularly in this underserved community. So it became something that was irreconcilable for me that we had a representative who was diverting our public money to a lot of these inhumane military adventures abroad um, while at the same time people here at home were struggling people here at home couldn't even get a decent education because we weren't adequately funding it um, the families who i worked with were struggling with housing were struggling with health care um, and that became something for me that i i couldn't reconcile and the fact that elliot engel hadn't had a serious challenge challenger for many years um i decided to jump in um Great. Uh, what do you think is the highlight? Well, I mean, you've mentioned education. Do you have any specific policies to uh, increase investment? To increase investment in education or, mm -hmm. or in, in public general? education? I mean, obviously, we have the problem of vouchers here in the Midwest, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think there are, are two things in particular that we can be doing. I mean, we have to uh, dramatically increase Title I funding. Uh, right now, about $14 million to. Uh, 14 billion to about 60 billion. Um, we have to dramatically increase funding of IDEA uh, for students with disabilities. Congress has uh, continuously not act, uh, adequately appropriated the proper funds that we've uh, deemed necessary for IDEA. We also need to properly fund Title II funding, which will, which this is a huge issue, particularly in the economy as it is right now, but at a 
adequately funding teacher training programs, adequately funding uh, efforts to train and retain teachers of color. Um, these are these are three main areas that we have a lot of issues. And you know, we in terms of the actual where the funding comes from, you know, the federal government is only responsible for about 10% of education funding. Um, and I think that's a number that could definitely increase, especially where it comes to um, providing grants uh, to the states for teacher training programs and teacher retention programs. Um, federal government can also increase their involvement where it comes to um, improving capital infrastructure and the deteriorating, st the deteriorating state of uh, America's public schools. Um, we have about $100 billion worth of necessary repairs that um, need to happen in the school system uh, to make sure that teachers are teaching in safe environments and students are learning um, in environments where that are suitable for them to learn in. Um, so I think these are just a couple of things that the federal government could be involved in in the immediacy. Right. It sounds like it would be pretty easy to get some consensus on a lot of those issues. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, we, when we look at, we look at majority minority districts, we see that they receive about $23 billion in less funding than, uh, than predominantly white districts. So I, the fact that there are great disparities between districts, we already know that this exists. We know how this impacts communities long term. Um, and I think also when it comes to just improving school infrastructure, this is something that is an issue that's important for workers. It's an issue that's important for students. Um, and it's something that uh, can be can be part of an engine of the Green New Deal, can be part of the engine of a federal jobs guarantee. I mean, this is what we should be contributing our efforts towards. I'm sure the uh, insane multiplier effect that education has on the rest of the economy is certainly underappreciated. Definitely. Um, okay. Uh, well, what does the Green New Deal specifically mean for Mount Vernon? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, the Green New Deal, I think, is not only is it specific policy proposals for what's necessary um, for us to do in terms of challenging the threat of climate extinction that we're facing, um, but I think it's also a way for us to sort of reorient the way in which we think about our economy and the way in which we think about our society. So when we look at Mount Vernon, uh, when we look at this district, we see an opportunity where, yes, we need to decarbonize um, and we need to make sure that we're decarbonizing quickly and efficiently in order to meet certain uh, deadlines. But it's also an opportunity for us to have here in Mount Vernon, again, throughout the district, democratic control um, of our systems that we use here in the district, and particularly our energy systems. So we can think about things like public power. We can think about the fact that energy and, and like Con Edison, for example, out here um, is making millions and millions of dollars in profit, um, while at the same time, we have people who are struggling to actually have energy, not recognizing that energy is a human right, and there are blackouts happening, that people are struggling to pay for their energy bills, and Con Edison is not doing anything to ensure that um, we have clean energy for, uh, for our grid. And so in Mount Vernon, I think there's an opportunity for us to, in this necessity to decarbonize, think about ways in which we can democratize control over our community resources and have a participatory approach to actually looking at what we need to do moving forward to deal with the climate threat. Uh, but are you talking like a public com public competitor or nationalization in terms of like infrastructure? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the way in which it, it goes about in terms of the timeline, uh, I think there are different ways to approach it. Um, you know, that I think that we, it's important that we have public utilities. Um, and so whether it is something that's immediately nationalized or there are competitors that are put out there, whether it can be um, community power organizations or whatnot, um, I, think that, I think that both of those options are something that uh, is important to think about. But moving towards that, op that approach where we're actually thinking about how we can de democratize our energy resources and decommodify energy, um, I think is very important. Um, okay, um, let's see. I'm just scrolling through your platform here, sorry. <laughs> uh, housing, that's of course always important and increasingly expensive. Uh, what, uh, I, I assume you've signed on to the uh, housing pledge. Yep. Of course, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, so um, the Homes Guarantee is a pledge that many progressive candidates have actually signed on to and it's something that um, we signed on to pretty early on and essentially what this is is recognizing that housing itself is a human right um, and the federal government has a role to invest in affordable housing this is a huge issue in new york as you can imagine um, this is something that i'm sure is on the news nationally uh, every now and then but here in the district i mean we feel it pretty acutely with enormously uh, rising rent burdens that people face uh, in, in Mount Vernon and in parts of Westchester, for example, one in 10 students are homeless, uh, which is just an absurd statistic. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there, there are huge issues we have here where it comes to housing, um, lack of affordable housing stock, uh, continuously increasing urban rental costs. And so the Homes Guarantee, again, as I said, recognizing housing as a human right, it guarantees that um, the federal government invests in building public and social housing uh, over the next 10 years, roughly between 10 to 12 million. Um, it necessitates that we institute an economic fair housing act to have uh, equitable zoning and eliminate exclusionary zoning, which is a huge issue in the suburban parts of the district in southern Westchester, uh, where you see a lot of single family homes and there's a lot of local zoning ordinances which prevent the construction of affordable dense housing. Um, we call for providing roughly $50 billion in rent, rent subsidies for moderately and severely rent burdened families. Again, this is a huge issue in New York City um, where we see rental costs rising dramatically. Um, so these are just a couple of things that we're talking about when we're talking about the homes guarantee. Um, but again, it's a dr dramatic investment in building affordable housing and it's providing uh, rent subsidies for folks and a national uh, renters bill of rights um, to ensure that tenants have rights to protect themselves from uh, unscrupulous landlords. Sure, I mean, even in a small, relatively small city like mine, these are huge issues because it's, I'm sure, like we have five more than 500 high school students that are homeless any given night and half oh the city is renting. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's the same kind of problems in a much bigger city, but without the same resources to uh, devote to them. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, there there are a lot of things that can be done where it comes to um, using, for example, a low-income housing tax credit to, uh, you know, stimulate the construction of these homes. The challenge has been historically is that um, after a certain number of years, these homes are, uh, which were initially supposed to be, 
um, you know, for whether it be for public housing um, or for people with, let's say, Section 8, they then go to market rate after a certain number of years, they become converted. Um, and so it's a, it's a huge issue that we're seeing, um, but it needs to be something that we recognize that uh, we need to provide affordable housing for the poor, we need to provide affordable housing for the working poor and, and guarantee housing for the homeless. Absolutely. Um, looking at uh, your tax policy, it's uh, you have some pretty interesting uh, points, but when you say raise the capital gains tax, what do you envision, or what would your be, or more specifically, the estate tax? What would your uh, ideal rate be? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that when we look at uh, Warren and uh, Bernie's policies on the estate tax, I think Warren in particular, um, I forget the number, I forget the number that Warren uh, had ha had said um, over the estate tax, but um, you know, it, it, this is, this is. Something that when we think about progressive wealth taxation, we need to uh, understand the ways in which it is really important for limiting economic uh, inequality and concretization of power. So, you know, when we're looking at an estate tax, uh, you know, anything that's over $10 million, um, you know, that we have to have a tax rate at depending on uh, some people say around 50%, 60%. Um, we don't have a finalized number on that, mm -hmm. but it's something that we just recognize as, as something that's important in uh, looking at the way that income inequality has dramatically widened here in this country. So we haven't ha we don't have a set number when it comes to the estate tax uh, or or wealth tax, but um, something that's on your radar. Exactly. Okay. Um, also, ending subsidies for fossil fuel companies. Would you envisioning transferring those as part of the Green New Deal to? the sustainable uh, greener alternatives or would you just cut out all energy subsidies? Yeah, so fossil fuel subsidies here in the US are about $650 billion. Um, in China, it amounts to about $1 trillion. Um, some of these are uh, direct subsidies. Uh, others of these are, you know, we see it in the form of uh, corporate welfare. Um, so we, we, we call for, within our green climate plan, explicitly ending all, all forms of uh, subsidies for uh, fossil fuel companies and then taxing them at any rate, at the rate, at a, for a carbon tax at which they're, um, if they continue to use fossil fuel resources. So it's a complete end of fossil fuel subsidies. Okay. Uh, what, uh I guess, what kind of research or other kind of development programs would you have put into place to, I guess, encourage alternatives, especially to like, you know, single-use plastics and other uses of oil that aren't necessarily energy-related? Can you rephrase the question? Um, I guess, is do you have any broad-stroke policies to like end our exploitation of fossil fuels like entirely, not only in energy, but also industrial uses? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that there are things that can be done with taxation, but really offsetting mechanisms have not proven to be um, not proven to be effective. Um, so we support taxation broadly, but overall, when it comes to industrial uses um, and and plastics, uh, really just the the general plan that we have when it comes to the Green New Deal right now is focusing on ending the subsidies and focusing on making 
Green New Deal, something that's global, and wealth transfers to um, the global south. That's really what we're focusing very much on the campaign because um, that has been an issue with Representative Engel considering the, his positioning within the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, so those are the two main issues and stamp and really just like ways in which we're hammering home the Green New Deal um, throughout the district. Um, so in terms of plastics or, or microplastics, you know, we don't really have a, a defined policy position on that yet. Okay. Uh, what kind of wealth capital investments or transfers are you thinking about? Like, yeah, like so, you know, the, the UN... Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead, please. Oh. Uh, um, fund calls for uh, industrialized nations to give about 0.7% of their GDP um, to the Green Climate Fund. Um, and the United States is one of the few industrialized nations that, well, I shouldn't say one of the few, but in, in terms of the industrialized nations, it's one of the, it contributes amongst the least percentage of its GDP. It contributes about 0.17% Green Climate Fund. So, you know, we need to ensure that we're adequately funding the Green, the green Climate Fund because these wealth transfers and these, uh, these, this money that we give to the Green Climate Fund um, is integral in order to uh, provide investment and sustainable development for countries in the global south, which increasingly, particularly, you know, once we see around over the next 30 years, especially over 2050, we'll see that carbon emissions from the global south will be um, enormously great and even outpacing that of the west where green energy and green technology is more readily available. So it becomes something where, you know, historically the west will have been responsible for the vast majority of, its, of the contributions to uh, carbon emissions uh, and climate change as we see it right now. But because they've been able to industrialize at a different time, um, they'll have the resources to be able to switch to uh, fossil to uh, renewable resources. And so we have to ensure that we're actually providing the resources to countries of the global south so that they can sustainably develop and we're not limiting them the opportunity to live a dignified life um, because now we see the threat of climate change. So, I guess to break it down in more simpler terms, you're hoping to help these countries leapfrog that stage of development and go purely into a green or more sustainable economy, ideally. Exactly, and that's only going to happen with wealth transfers, with capital transfers, um, mm -hmm. with supporting these countries in, in doing that. All right. Um, well, since we are, we're already talking about international issues, uh, Eritrea, a country that I've studied a lot and you are from, has seen some pretty drastic changes. Can you uh, talk about them, what it means for a member of the diaspora? Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. It's uh, something that you've, uh, a country that you've studied a lot of, you very rarely see this uh, in America. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty fascinating country, as you know. Uh, it is, when I was growing up, it was the world's uh, newest independent nation. Um, officially became independent in 1993 after fighting a very, very protracted 30-year, uh, over 30-year civil war, um, or from the Eritrean perspective, a, a war of independence with Ethiopia. Um, Post-93, the history has been uh, pretty challenging. Clinton, Bill Clinton called it the future of Africa in 1993, um, and, you know, a lot of things look promising for Eritrea. They wrote a constitution. Um, in 97 that was ratified, but 1998 there was a border war with Ethiopia from 98 to 2000 uh, and then since then 
the Eritrean government and the Forky sort of clamped down um, on the country. Because recently there's been a rapprochement with Ethiopia, um, when previously, since 2000, there had been uh, this state of emergency that had always sort of existed in the air, um, especially around the failure to implement the Boundary Commission ruling uh, and, and fully demarcate the border. But we see this rapprochement, we see Isaias Afworki, the president of Eritrea and Ethiopia, um, seemingly coming together with this peace. But, you know, being that it was Martin Luther King Day, uh, just, uh, what was it, yesterday, um, you know, that quote by Martin Luther King is, peace is not the absence of war, it's the presence of justice. And I think that's very important when we think about what peace really means in Eritrea and Ethiopia. Um, right now we even see there's still border closings um, in Eritrea, prisoners have still been languishing uh, in jail in Comunicado for decades. There haven't been people released and military conscription still exists. And this is one of the reasons why Eritrea is one of the largest refugee producing states per capita in the entire world. Um, and so yes, peace is good. It's good to have uh, engagement with Ethiopia. It, it leads to some optimism, but at the same time, many conditions on the ground in Eritrea haven't changed. So going forward, what uh, paths of engagement do you think we should be pursuing? Like, obviously, we have embassies in countries that most of Americans probably don't like. So should we, you know, build embassies, help build that bridge or support we, regional we, efforts? We, we meaning the United States? Yes, we meaning the United States. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation because on one hand, um, you don't want to normalize dictatorship. Um, but on the other hand, uh, completely not engaging with the country um, does not help. Um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and there's a lot of uh, positivity that could come with engagement. So, you know, I believe the United States should engage with Eritrea. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not of the mindset that, you know, you just completely cut off a country and things are going to improve. You know, over the last 20 years, uh, regardless of whether there has been engagement or not engagement, Isaias has done what he wants to do. Um, so I think with engagement, we can actually see um, potentially uh, have the goals that the Eritrean people have wanted to be achieved for the last 20 years to, to hopefully come to fruition. And whether that comes with the support of the United States or not, um, you know, I hope it's something that can exist. But from the United States perspective, I think it's always important to be able to engage um, with countries and, and be able to speak to the values that are important um, to not only the United States, but the international community. Um, so, uh, your district is strange. Well, I guess it's not really strange, but like district... Gerrymandered America. Yeah, gerrymandered America. There is one choice, and so the primary is the election. Yes. It's crazy for how dense the district is that 22,000 people could decide... How, or who goes up for the uh, general election. <laughs> uh, yep. What's your path to 22,000 votes? <laughs> yeah, you know, our, our, our win number is a little bit less than that, um, but as, you, as you're as you totally right, you know, Elliot Engel in the last election received 22,000 of the 30,000 votes. Um, even though this is a presidential year and there t tends to be voter fatigue um, in a presidential year, and I know people nationally are listening to this, so in New York, we have the presidential primary in April, and then two months later, we have uh, the primary for, for federal and state races. Um, so there tends to be fatigue when you look historically uh, in presidential years like that. But 
you know, my candidacy and some of the other progressive challengers were really mobilizing a lot of parts of the district that have historically um, been disengaged. So we're feeling pretty confident that, you know, we'll be able to raise the number of voters who are, who are going to be turning out, even though, again, it's a, it's a presidential uh, year. So how do we get those numbers, as you asked? Look, we have to convince a lot of triple prime voters who have voted for Elliot Engel in the past. And we think that we're going to be able to do that because of Elliot Engel's voting record and how he really has not been the progressive that many people in the district want. We feel that there are many people who, you know, will feel that it's just time for a change because it's a, he's been a 31-year incumbent. Um, but how we get those votes is because we're offering a vision which is uh, radically, radically different and, and a radical departure from not only Elliot Engels, but um, the establishment of the Democratic Party. Um, and I know you were scrolling through my website, you can see a lot of the different, uh, different planks that we have where we are standing pretty strong um, for decommodifying a lot of the basic uh, needs that all Americans have, um, which we believe the government should be doing. And also a foreign policy, which is not only internationalist, um, that stands in solidarity with oppressed people, but one that is anti-militarism, anti-militaristic and anti-imperialist, um, which is really, again, the opposite of what Elliot Engel stood for. So we have access points that we hope are going to be bringing people in. But at the same time, we're going through all different parts of the district where people have not been engaged. Um, we're registering a lot of voters, and we're hopeful that, you know, last year, uh, 2018, only 9.7% of the district came out. We're hopeful it's going to be a lot more. 9.7? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess I won't take up any more of your time, Andam. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I hope to have you, have you on again before the program. Right? Yes, yes, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, bearing with me through these last couple of crazy months. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. All right, thank you, Andam. Have a good night. I appreciate you. Days are sunny. Days are rain. Destroy the myth that will break our chains. Break your chains!